All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Ashish Khanna. <clears throat> Dr. Khanna, uh, he did anesthesia residency at Cleveland Clinic, followed up with an anesthesia critical care fellowship there, and has been ultra productive over the past uh, decade or so in exploring a number of critical care related topics from perioperative medicine, from intraoperative medicine to ICU medicine. Uh, his main focus is more recently is the deterioration of, um, of patients in the in-hospital setting and how to detect them early, early. And so we're lucky to have him talk to us about that very uh, topic. Um, just as a sidebar, so Ashish and I have uh, really uh, were able to get to know one another during the whole angiotensin II study for Athos III, and spent some time in uh, all over the place, and uh, and I just want to thank him here publicly for stating during uh, his talk in Belgium for uh, claiming that I grabbed one of his slides. So uh, Ashish, I don't know at what point in this lecture there may be a slide that's uh, a surprise one for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, no, but so thanks for coming. Uh, it's great having you. He's now, he uh, changed from Cleveland Clinic to uh, Wake Forest recently uh, to, as an associate professor and associate section for uh, research, um, section head for research there. So it's great having you. All right. Well, Thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you for the introduction. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, I might not have a surprise slide for you, but if you want, I can share as many candid stories about uh, what we did at Brussels. I know this is being recorded and it will be on the, on the departmental library as well at some stage, so I don't want to say too much about you. All right. <laughs> um, again, uh, thank you for having me uh, as uh, Dr. McCurdy uh, stated uh, uh, perioperative outcomes research is certainly um, something that I'm very fond of. And my talk today is going to be an effort to connect us. Um, is there any, a lot of anesthesiologists in this room? Are there any anesthesiologists in this room? No one. I'm the only one. Okay, that's great. All right. Well, I'm still going to make an effort to connect us because... I'm an anesthesiologist intensivist by profession, and I feel that we work in areas, the operating room, the ICU, and the space in between, which is the PACU and the general care floor of the hospital ward. And the time has come to understand that outcomes in these three spaces are not mutually exclusive of each other. In fact, they're very intricately related to each other. And as my data is going to tell you, at least when we look at hemodynamics and the respiratory component of things, it is our responsibility to ensure patient safety as the patient makes his or her way from the operating room, the PACU, the floor, back into the ICU or PACU to the ICU one way or the other. By the way, why aren't there any anesthesiologists in the room? I thought I had lunch with John Chow. Did he go away? Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's like he's hiding. Anyway, um, so um, that's going to be my effort today. A lot of data, hemodynamics and respiratory. Um, I'm happy to take questions afterwards. And at the end of this talk, I'm hoping that you all will have a little bit of an insight into why it is critical to defend hemodynamics and defend patient surveillance in terms of cardiorespiratory compromise in the perioperative environment. These are some of my academic affiliations. Uh, some commercial uh, disclosures. None of this is a conflict of interest with the material on my slides today. So like I said, it's a blood pressure journey. Take your patient under anesthesia in the operating room. Patient goes to the PACU, goes to the ICU, goes to the floor. It's a journey where we have to have all eyes on our patient and ensure vigilance one way or the other. So all of this actually started with this um, paper that was titled The Empirical Definition of Hypotension. Uh, Walsh and colleagues looked at about 30,000 non-cardiac surgical patients at Cleveland Clinic where they were able to establish a, a dose response curve, as I would say, 
for hypotension and post-operative outcomes. So right here at about a map of 65 is where they established an increasing probability of both myocardial injury and acute kidney injury. This paper published in anesthesiology in 2013 really started us, at least in the anesthesia community, thinking about hypotension. We knew that hypotension was bad intraoperatively, but we really hadn't defined threshold pressures. And this paper really set the stage for understanding that threshold blood pressure of a MAP less than 65 is critically that dangerous point for our patients under anesthesia. Now, where this paper was really interesting was that it established a time-dependent duration of harm, so to speak. So a full minute or a minute up to three minutes of MAPs less than 55 was enough to increase the odds of acute kidney injury, myocardial injury, or any cardiac complication. Now, understanding that most procedures under surgery have an average duration of about 120 minutes, what is a few minutes? Or what is 20 minutes for that matter where the adjusted odds of all of this organ system injury nearly doubles? Keeping that in mind and knowing that we have anesthesia monitors and continuous blood pressure monitoring intraoperatively, we should probably more, be more diligent in what we are doing to avoid MAPs going down to 55 or less. Now, this is one side of this data that seems to be pretty clear-cut. However, there is, in fact, mostly hot off the press, just published by the Multicenter Perioperative Outcomes Group, the MPOG group in anesthesiology, but they looked at acute kidney injury again. And what this group has suggested is that the harm is probably more significant in patients with medium to high preoperative risk. So I'm not saying that blood pressure is not critical intraoperatively, but the type of patient that gets exposed to hypotension is also extremely critical. They looked at absolute intraoperative hypotension nadirs and relative intraoperative hypotension nadirs. And patients at the lowest preoperative risk had essentially no increase in harm whatsoever. Again, meaning being that it's difficult to generalize, but however, there is a patient population with a preoperative risk that we need to be extra diligent about one way or the other. Looks like there's going to be more to come in, come in this space and, and certainly more, especially in terms of randomized trials that we need to do. Having said that, if I look back at the past five to 10 years, there's been several rounds of literature that has re-emphasized hypotension and poor outcomes. This is 100,000 non-cardiac surgical patients at Cleveland Clinic where they looked at 30-day mortality and whether they looked at about 10 minutes of a map less than 75 or a time-weighted average of MAP less than 75, right about here is where the 30-day mortality started increasing and went up on a logic scale to really, really uh, high levels as your time-weighted average of MAP or minimum MAP more than 10 minutes started dropping under a MAP of about 75. So again, another round of data that emphasized the value of intraoperative blood pressure control. A question that a lot of folks, at least in the anesthesia community, ask themselves and also in the perioperative community is, what about the chronic hypertensive who walks into the operating room or the ICU for that matter? Where do I keep his or her blood pressure? Is it still an absolute value of 65-ish or 70? Or is it a relative change? Now, at least the data suggests that there is no difference whatsoever. Data suggests that whether you look at a 25% reduction from baseline, or you look at a map of 65, the amount of harm is just about, or the risk of harm is just about the same, whether it's myocardial injury right here, or acute kidney injury right here. So time-dependent exposure to maps less than 65, or a 25% reduction baseline is about the same harm one way or the other. The easy 
question answered for the anesthesiologist here was that a MAPA-65 might still be the appropriate intraoperative target. Now, at this point, I'm going to say that all of this data that I talked about was all retrospective. Large data sets, controlled for extensive confounders, a lot of propensity matching going in at the back end. That data is never as good as randomized controlled trials. There is, however, just this one RCT that's been recently published in JAMA, part of the INPRESS trial, that actually randomized patients to higher low blood pressures intraoperatively. Or I won't say higher low blood pressures, they looked at two groups. One, where they controlled blood pressures close to baseline using a norepinephrine infusion, and the other, where they allowed blood pressures to drop to a systolic of 60, where they gave, gave ephedrine boluses, and then compared the two groups. This data is interesting because they saw in the, in the group that had baseline blood pressures controlled close to 10% of what was a patient's baseline coming into surgery, they fared much better on a composite outcome of inflammation and organ system injury. Interesting data, only 300 patients randomized, only one myocardial infarction. Most of the composite outcome was driven by acute kidney injury and systemic inflammation and some, and some by mental, mental status changes. So some people might argue that not very significant hard outcomes. But again, this is RCT data, and this any day would outshine retrospective large data sets. The message, though, is still clear. Hypotension appears to be bad one way or the other. Whether we've established a clear thresh threshold, for now, 65 seems to be our magic number intraoperatively. The timing of hypotension is critical as well. Now, uh, again, I don't have any anesthesia friends in the audience, but for, for all, all of us who practice anesthesia, we know that hypotension hits us in the operating room at about two points. Peri-induction, when you put a patient to sleep, and then duration of surgery, when blood loss, hemorrhage, fluid losses, patients open for four hours, that's the time where you, you're hypotensive. It's been seen that up to a third of all MAPs less than 65 or hypotension happens during the peri-induction period. And looking at outcomes, that is equally and independently associated with acute kidney injury. So a message there again being this is the time where appropriate titration of anesthetic meds would probably be an easy intervention to improve post-operative outcomes one way or the other. Now, tachycardia kind of flows in with hypotension, and the thought is that tachycardia is going to be as harmful as, as hypotension, if not more. However, data doesn't quite support that. For example, this work that was published in the European Journal looked at time-weighted averages of heart rate greater than certain thresholds and found no associations whatsoever with myocardial injury or mortality. However, Abbott and colleagues then looked at hypotension and hypertension under and more different thresholds and the association of different heart rate thresholds and saw in patients who were extremely hypotensive or extremely hypertensive, when they had tachycardia, they had poor outcomes. So looks like tachycardia in and of itself is still relatively benign, but tachycardia in combination with blood pressure swings is associated with poor outcomes. Another question that's been asked is, well, we know all of this hypotension happens intraoperatively. Can we do something to better monitor it? And a, and a fairly common sense answer, but something that we've recently published as a randomized trial was that we randomized patients to non-invasive blood pressure cuffs versus arterial lines and saw that A-lines would detect more than two times as much hypotension under different thresholds compared to standard non-invasive blood pressure cuffs. And knowing that hypertension is associated with all of this harm, it's probably time to start thinking about more aggressive intraoperative monitoring. Might not necessarily mean an A-line on every patient, but still would mean some sort of more eyes on the blood pressure monitoring at, at all stages intraoperatively. A question I've been asked again and again is, is it only MAP? So MAP of 65, I've talked about it all the time, 
but recently published data where we then looked at systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and pulse pressure, we were able to establish thresholds of a MAP of 65, a diastolic less than 45, pulse pressure less than 35, and a systolic less than 90, all associated with intraoperative harm. And critically, all of them almost similar in the pattern of harm. So whether you look at the systolic curve here or the diastolic here or the pulse pressure or MAP, they all seem to have the same probability of myocardial injury or AKI as they decrease below thresholds. Again, our message is simple. Keep, keep it simple for yourself, a MAP of 65 or MAP seal still seems to be the guiding principle for intraoperative blood pressure control. Now, enough said intraoperatively, let me move this patient out to the floor. Most of us believe that a floor patient is it's a stable environment, patient stable is going to go home. The reality of the matter is that 50% of all adverse events that happen in hospitals across the world happen outside the ICU. They happen on hospital wards. And when these events happen, about half of these patients don't get to go home that they have in hospital mortality at one stage or the other. We have shown in, and I'm gonna show you in the slides that come in after this, that both post-operative hypotension and hypoxemia are common, persistent, profound, prolonged, and largely undetected using our standard of care monitoring systems, which is a nurse or a provider going in to check on a patient every four to six hours. Plus the whole issue that heart attacks when they occur post-operatively are largely silent, mostly do not have traditional signs and symptoms, and are still responsible for about 50% of all primary hospitalization deaths for patients across this country. This was just some of the work we've done. We've looked at stop bank scores, which is a scoring system for obstructive sleep apnea. It did not correlate one way or the other at different stop bank thresholds and different thresholds for post-operative hypoxemia with the amount and duration of hypoxemia. We also looked at the type of opioid used, morphine, fentanyl, or dilaudid. And again, post-operative hypoxemia was common with all of our patients but the type of opioid use did not predict for the amount and duration and severity of hypoxemia. So respiratory depression postoperatively appears to be unpredictable. Recently finished, uh, this is the Prodigy trial, prediction of opioid-induced respiratory depression in patients monitored by capnography. We aim to answer the same question. We monitored 1,600 patients across the world with continuous capnography and oximetry all of it done blinded and silenced. Data was being collected continuously where every four hour checks would happen on these patients per norm. What we uncovered afterwards was interesting. We saw about 45% of our patients had some sort of respiratory event that was going undetected. We've also come up with the Prodigy risk score where we've used five easy to use bedside variables, and we've, we've been able to give the clinician some sort of guidance into the prediction of post-operative respiratory compromise. But I don't want to dwell too much into Prodigy today. I want to highlight some of this. This is what I call a bedside EKG of respiratory monitoring on patients on the floor. And in an era of continuous monitoring, I also call it uh, a flight data recorder for our patients on the floor. And this is where things are helpful because this is pattern detection for you. <clears throat> Here is oxygen saturation in the red, heart rate in the green, and up top is end-tidal CO2. This is a patient with obstructive sleep apnea going through cyclical spells of oxygen desaturations, very, very typical of patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Gets tachycardic almost perfectly in conjunction with desaturation and also has these large gaps of apneic periods if you look at the entitled CO2 trace. If this patient is not continuously monitored, we would probably never pick up signal like this. We'll probably keep giving narcotics for pain control. At some point, this is going to deteriorate into prolonged periods of apnea and possible respiratory arrest. This is where continuous monitoring is really going to turn things around if we do it well. Here's another example. The purple here is an actual clinical event 
The blue dashed line here is when the monitor first picks up a no breath alarm. Here is only a lead time of 10 minutes, but I would say that in, in a real world, there would be a significant lead time on a lot of our patients who are currently being monitored by just a vital signs check at midnight, 4 a.m., 8 a.m. That is certainly probably not the only way to leave this. I'm going to leave this part of the discussion right here because I think there is still not enough RCT data to show that continuous surveillance on the floor improves survival, but there is certainly something to be said about what we know so far. Going back to hypotension, uh, post-operative hypotension is difficult to separate from post-operative respiratory depression. In fact, I don't think that these two events are mutually exclusive. I think patients who's having a respiratory distress event is probably hypotensive either before or afterwards. Dan Sessler has done some excellent work in this area. This is post-hoc analysis of the POISE-2 trial where he showed that hypotension on post-op day one to four right here is associated with about three times the risk of harm comparing to the same amount of hypotension intraoperatively or during the day of surgery. This is a better way to look at the same thing. So three times the odd, uh, odds of MI or death if you look at post-operative hypotension on day one to four compared to similar periods intraoperatively or uh, during the patient's vacu stay. So hypotension postoperatively is pretty bad. And I'm going to come back to my same point right here. Um, it goes undetected because we don't monitor it enough. I'm not going to dwell into all of the data on this slide. This is a very simple study where we just looked at continuous postoperative hypotension monitoring using a portable hypotension detection or blood pressure monitoring device on postoperative patients identified that at least 50% of our patients were having significant hypotension that was going undetected based on routine surveillance monitoring. And same, same is the case for hypertension. Again, I'm not dwelling into the data here. I can talk about it afterwards, but MAPS greater than 115 were going undetected based on routine surveillance monitoring and were being picked up continuously by portable monitoring. So there is time to look at post-operative hypotension and outcomes. This is unpublished raw data, and that's why um, there's a lot of numbers on this slide. I apologize for that. What I'm going to tell you is that we have looked at about 300,000 patients across the country. And the group right here is patients on the floor who have had MAPS greater than 75 all the time. This is our control group. And as we go to MAPS less than 75, less than 65, and less than 55, across a variety of outcomes, whether it's MACE, MI, acute kidney injury, hospital readmission, 30 and 90 day mortality, all of it consistently increases as blood pressure decreases in our floor patients. And this is, by the way, just spot check monitoring. I can only tell you how bad it's going to look if it was continuous blood pressure detection. Again, lots of raw data here, unpublished for now, but the odds of harm increased consistently looking at various outcomes. The interesting part about this data set is we also looked at patients who were hypotensive intraoperatively, then had coexistent hypotension postoperatively. So two hit, two insults. These patients, uh, as expected, did worse once their blood pressures dro dropped lower. More to come in this space. <clears throat> and here is my idea of continuous monitoring. And I call it the 4 a.m. phenomenon because as an intensive care physician, um, especially when I took overnight call, at about three o'clock at night, my pager would go off and I could get a rapid response from the floor. Unknown hypotension, unknown hypoxemia. God knows what happened. Send him, to, send him for a PE scan. Do this, do some troponins, run some labs. The answer is actually pretty simple. The answer is that probably the patient was sitting around like this, started turning blue. No one's checking on the patient. When you check on the patient, everything looks really bad. Then you call a code. If you had a continuous monitoring device that would have an effective feedback loop that would then alert someone to come to the bedside and fix things, this 4 a.m. phenomenon probably would not have happened. And it's a really, really simple common sense thing. 
However, there is caveats. I'm going to talk about it, but a very simple thing that's very easily fixable and would prevent a drain on critical care resources across the country, across the world, uh, for that matter. So I call it the flight data recorder for our patients on the floor. Currently, we're letting them fly without flight data recorders. Everything's great if that flight's well. If things go wrong, we have no clue what happened. We just run a battery of tests on them, send them to the ICU. We'll probably fix some of them. Some of them will have anoxic brain injury and die, but we're okay with that. The problem with continuous monitoring, and it was as easy as that, is the problem of alarm fatigue. We at Wake have had continuous monitoring on the floor for the last four years or so. About 700,000 patient hours of data. But the biggest problem that we have faced is the problem of alarm fatigue. It's converting a floor to an ICU. Alarms going off all over the place. We've tried to model our alarms, and the best we are at is about three patient alarms per day. Looks great, but again, if you ask an average floor nurse, it is still too much. So a lot is to be done in this area if we have to improve monitoring on the floor, but it seems to be, uh, for now, a simple solution to improving patient outcomes. Let me jump on to ICU hypotension. And as the spaghetti of IV lines looks here, we're very used to this kind of uh, ICU setup. ICU hypotension is clearly more complicated than anything else I've talked about to date. It's very difficult to separate outcomes from hypotension, but let's see what I, <clears throat> what I have for you. So what I have for you is that really there's a paucity of data where, where we've tried to examine what map is associated with poor outcomes in critically ill patients. The only good randomized data is data from PRA as far as group. This group in France did what is called the sepsis-PAM trial, where they looked at high versus low blood pressure targets in patients with septic shock. Their high blood pressure target group was a map of 80 to 85. Low blood, low blood pressure target group was a map of 65 to 70. And they found no difference whatsoever at 28-day or 90-day mortality. Now, there were a lot of sidelights to this trial. I'm not going to dwell into all of them. The big one is patients who were chronically hypertensive going into this, and when they were exposed to the low blood pressure target group, had poorer renal outcomes. To suggest that just saying a MAP of 65 is good for everyone in the ICU is probably um, not best practice. And I know that Surviving Sepsis Campaign still says MAP of 65 is great, but I will still say that in the era of precision medicine, if a MAP of 65 was good for everyone across the board, then he would probably have no organ system injury related to hypotension in the ICU, which is clearly not the case. So the one issue people ask me is, you know, I'm going to preach for better or higher blood pressures in the ICU. Um, well, that means more vasopressors, more vasopressors, as Sam Brown elegantly shows in this work published in Chest, means poorer outcomes. People exposed to high-dose vasopressors, as they get closer to norepinephrine equivalents of 0.8 to 1, have a lot of mortality. About 80% of folks exposed to high-dose vasopressors in your ICUs will die at 90 days after exposure, irrespective of what you do to their primary condition. And a lot of others will have fingers like this. And we don't even keep track of folks who have fingers like this afterwards because clearly they're NELTAX. Who knows where they go? We don't know what kind of quality of life they have afterwards. So um, I'm going to say that the approach to vasopressors needs to be slightly different. Um, for years, we have tried to just use one vasopressor all the time to get to our MAP outcomes. I am bringing up angiotensin II here. Dr. McCurdy is sitting in the audience. He's going to smile at this. But the fact of the matter is that it's not just angiotensin II. I think it is our whole approach to vasopressors. Whether we use catecholamine or we use vasopressin or we use angiotensin II, we have to look at a multimodal early, early broad spectrum use of vasopressors is what we term it. It's got to be done early when your patient is still on a salvageable part of the resuscitation curve. When your patient has a lactate of 20 and has had norepinephrine going for five days or 10 days, that's not the time to switch vasopressors. Because simplistically speaking, and I don't need to teach you guys this, going at it 
through all receptor pathways is probably the best way to do it versus going at every patient with only catecholamines first, letting them get exhausted, then going to vasopressin, then going to ANG2, then going to methylene blue, vitamin C, whatever you guys want to try. But it has to be early multimodal if, you're, if you have to salvage and turn your patient around. So defense of blood pressure is critical, but doing it well is also critical one way or the other. Talking about burden of hypotension, I have to come back to this because I still haven't established what blood pressure is good for us in the ICU. This is data from the MIMIC-3 data set, medical information marred for intensive care. And it clearly shows what we're missing. So looking at patients who were exposed to hypotension for at least two hours or less than four hours in an ICU where they had vasopressors going for at least six hours before this data was drawn, we saw that at least two-thirds, almost two-thirds of patients still had MAPS less than 65 and a third of the patients had MAPS less than 60, a fifth of the patients had MAPS less than 55. So despite knowing the guidelines, we're still not quite there in terms of defending blood pressure. The other problem, sorry about that, the other problem is that these patients then don't do well, mortality goes up, it's almost to the tune of 70% once their exposure to hypotension is about 12 hours or so. I've tried to establish what is the threshold for, of hypotension in the ICU. And this is, again, retrospective data for 3,000 post-operative surgical patients, where we saw that looking at a median MAP of 87, as we went lower, a MAP of 78, a MAP of 68 right here, there was a nonlinear, a quadratic, actually, upswing in the amount of harm associated with lower blood pressures in the ICU. So almost a 30 to 60% increase in odds of myocardial injury and mortality as blood pressure started decreasing beyond or lower than a median MAP of 87. These are post-operative SICU patients. The other critical side to this work was that all of this damage was dependent on intraoperative hypotension. So difficult to separate intraoperative from post-operative harm. Here is another data set that's going to be presented at SCCM in three weeks where we did separate intraoperative from postoperative. These patients had no intraoperative hypotension whatsoever, had postoperative hypotension in a surgical ICU, and they had significantly more 30-day, 90-day mortality and 7-day AKI once their MAPs were less than 75. Again, the data is at a raw stage for now, not published, but I will... I am suggesting a slightly higher MAP is probably needed for at least some of our patients in the intensive care unit. We've established this on other patient sets as well. This is 10,000 medical ICU patients across the country from 110 ICUs in the United States. We showed that for every one unit of time-weighted average MAP less than 65, there was a 7 to 10% increase in AKI and or myocardial injury. Now that is certainly not new news. We know that MAPS of 65 are probably bad. Uh, less than that is probably bad in the ICU. What we interestingly showed and was slightly more um, eye-opening was that the harm started at a MAP of 85. So as a MAP got less than 85, the harm associated or the odds of myocardial injury, acute kidney injury, and mortality at a stepwise increase from MAP 85 down to a MAP of 55, clearly advocating for a slightly higher MAP maintenance in our critically ill patients. And we've done this on several other data sets. Here is post-operative delirium. Again, a MAP of 75 appears to be that cut point above and below which there was a 30% increased risk of post-operative delirium. And you might think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably biased here. There's other groups that have looked at the same situation. This is uh, Pierre Asfar's group. They have recently published a post hoc analysis of sepsis PAM, where they looked at their high versus low blood pressure target groups. And they saw that patients who had a higher blood pressure target had better RAS scores in the ICU, better neurological responses in the ICU. So retrospective data is certainly creating a lot of noise about 
not necessarily a MAP of 65, a higher MAP in the ICU, and the fact that critically ill patients are definitely very sensitive to low blood pressure. Uh, this data is still in the works. We're aiming to develop a risk prediction index for hypotension after intubation in critically ill patients. And our model has again shown that systolic blood pressures below 130 or a MAP below 95 appears to be the, the MAP that's included in the model. And as blood pressure goes lower, then blood pressure post-intubation in our ICU patients will be lower as well. Again, in the works and more to come in this space. So is the map of 65 a target of the past? Pierre Asfar wrote this editorial for our paper in intensive care medicine. And, and um, I, I'm happy to say that he, he said that the time has come to reconsider a map of 65 in the ICU, but not based on retrospective data, probably based on another well-conducted randomized controlled trial with better outcomes and more granular data extraction techniques. <clears throat> Similarly, I personally don't think that we're quite there yet when we look at defending a mean arterial pressure in the ICU or conducting research on hemodynamics in the ICU. We're not doing a good job defending a MAP of 65, and we're not doing a good job extracting data from the ICU because all of our data is essentially based on data that someone validates and enters in an EMR. And then we go back and look at those EMRs and we derive all of this data and we publish all of these results. In an ideal world, we should be get, getting a direct stream of data from bedside monitors that is true patient data and not data that has been validated as, oh, this is a blood pressure I like. I will enter this in the EMR. And then my, I, the researcher will come back and look at it. So a lot to be done in this space as well. Finally, I'm going to leave you with a trial that's not published, but the 65 trial is really interesting. It was presented at a meeting in Ireland a little bit ago, looked at 65 ICUs, part of the NHS system in England. Patients were more than 65 years old, so everything's 65. And the blood pressure arms were permissive hypotension, that's a map between 60 and 65, or standard of care, which for them was a map greater than 65. And again, no difference whatsoever in mortality and a slew of other secondary outcomes. So clearly, RCT data still doesn't quite tell us what map we should defend, but data sets seem to suggest that a higher map may be uh, associated with, watch the word, I'm saying associated with uh, better outcomes. This trial hopefully is going to be published in the next six months or so. So watch this. This is going to be another RCT of blood pressure control in the ICU. All in all, never forget perfusion. I can harp about hypotension in the operating room, in the post-operative space, bring up your blood pressures. But if you don't perfuse the microcapillary bed, then you're not going to have good outcomes. If I can... I don't know if I can run these uh, slides here. These are actual video clips of um, um, sublingual capillary blood flow. And <clears throat> I don't probably need to tell you, but this, is, this right here is a healthy patient. This is a patient in severe end-stage septic shock with a lot of pressors. Probably has a good blood pressure. But you look at the capillary dropout right here. Look at the capillaries here. And I'll, I'll show it to you again. These are real clips from the ATHOS-3 trial. And look at the sluggish blood flow over on that side. And look at how quickly the blood cells are going across here. This is where, this is the real deal. I can talk a lot about blood pressure. For now, we probably have no good way of looking at this on our patients. So we really don't know what patient cuts off microcirculatory perfusion on what map. And, and this is where future research should go. Healthy late sepsis. End it all. These are some drivers of my perfusion. These are my three children. These, are, these guys are identical twins. They're going to turn, they, they, they turn three uh, in January. This guy's going to be six in March. They don't always sit like this. This is them staring at a TV screen. And if, if only they sat like this all the time, life would be great. And they don't walk in a straight line for me. This is their mom who's a pediatrician who can probably make them walk like this. But um, 
I can I can bring up a lot of data and sound very knowledgeable, but when I go home, I am not knowledgeable at all. I'm all over the place. Thank you, thank you so much for your time today. I'm open for questions. Um, my next slide is not coming up, but it was it was my last slide with some suggested reading, and uh, but I will be. Oh, there we go. There we go. So, if anyone wants to. <clears throat> go into greater depths about what I just talked about. These are this is a really nice review that we wrote for intensive care medicine that looks at the whole spectrum of hypotension in the perioperative space and how it affects myocardial injury. Up in the right hand corner is my viewpoint on surveillance and the postoperative floor environment and how that will lead to better outcomes and better protection of blood pressure and respiratory thresholds. Thank you for your time and open for questions. I'll uh, start out. Now, I think the uh, it's an important change that I think we all need to think about is um, we're traditionally taught in silos, anesthesia, critical care, surgery, critical care, medical, critical care, pulmonary, and all these various different uh, groups are trained in these various different uh, environments. But in reality, that one patient doesn't care where he or she is along that continuum. It's the same patient you know, 10 minutes before arrival in the ED, you know, as it is, you know, three hours later, you know, urgently in the OR and uh, two hours later in the ICU or on the wards, right? And, um, and I think that what's really nice about what you've been able to do in the ORs is that you have such, such access to continuous monitoring and the ability to intervene promptly because you're right there at the bedside. But uh, what you're bringing up is just increasing. Um, uh, I mean, one of the various things you're bringing up that I think is important for all of us to recognize with the, given the patients, uh, the patient is a patient regardless of location. I think um, the significance of hypotension most likely is the same regardless of that location, whether it's in the OR or now you're branching into the ICU and now onto the wards. But I think that the better and what you're alluding to here and with your recommended reading is that, you know, as are the ability to continuously monitor individuals in these locations that have not yet been previously monitored is going to really open up a whole lot of insight into the true uh, prevalence and significance of hypotension throughout the hospitalization. Yeah. Hey, that was a great talk. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you view in the, the future of precision medicine, as you called it. So uh, the, the Cambridge group just finished enrolling the cogitate trial. Um, I'm a neurointensivist, so this is our world, but uh, basically, what they're they're doing in that trial in TBI is uh, trying to come up with personalized blood pressure goals based on autoregulatory curves using correlation coefficient between ICP and and MAP. And and to me, I think this is a breakthrough because this is in a way it's truly personalized medicine as opposed to saying, well, you previously were hypertensive and now you do, you are in this group and we're just going to dichotomize. Where do you see this going in um, patients who don't have an ICP monitor, but in System, you know, large ICU populations about truly individualized care? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the question is, where, where do I see precision-based monitoring of hemodynamic thresholds in the ICU going? I, I, you know, I do believe in the next five to 10 years, I think everyone will probably have some sort of baseline markers of hemodynamic thresholds that you and I, for example, if I and you were patients in the ICU, I think both of us don't need a MAP in 65. There would be a set of markers on us that would say, I need a higher MAP or you need a higher MAP. It sounds very fairy tale for now, but I think we're, we're getting there. In the end, I'm going to use buzzwords like AI and machine learning, and we're all fond of talking about things like that these days. But I think we're getting there because we have many hundreds and thousands of patient hours worth of data in the perioperative space, in the ICU space. It's about running the right analytics on them and understanding that all of us don't need the same map. 
The other thing I would be, um, I would like to comment upon is the fact that for long, we have looked at mortality as our only outcome in the ICU. I think that mindset also needs to change. We, we get very excited when we're able to prove a mortality difference in critical care. And honestly, there's only like one or two things in critical care that have shown a consistent mortality difference, right? So I think blood pressure is one of those things where you probably never see a difference in mortality if you do a randomized trial, but you'll see a difference in a lot of softer outcomes whether it's duration of stay in the ICU, whether it's renal injury, whether it's days on dialysis, whether it's days on that are free from vasopressors. I think those are patient-centric outcomes, and those are outcomes that make a difference to hospital administrators who, who bear the burden of patients staying longer in the ICU. I think that's where this research needs to go to. So whether it's precision medicine or whether it's doing the next RCT looking at high and low blood pressures in the ICU, we need to look at these outcomes and not necessarily keep our focus on mortality if you're really going to start making a difference for our patients. Thank you so much for the talk. Uh, I was wondering if, or how you guys have looked at combating the, uh, uh, how you guys have looked at combating the alarm fatigue with your floor nurses are you doing that at the same time as you're moving this forward until AI or machine learning has gotten to the point of only needing to tell us uh, or nurses when they need to be worried? Right, right, right. So the alarm fatigue part on the floor is interesting. So what we've done is we've looked at different thresholds. So for example, a SAT of 90, 85, 80, same for hypotension. And then we put delays on alarms. So so a delay could be 30 seconds of continuous SATs less than 90, 45 seconds of continuous SATs less than 90, a minute or two minutes, right? The obvious chances are if someone's continuously satting less than 90 for two minutes, it's likely not a false alarm, although their monitor or sticker could have just fallen to the ground, you know, and, and I can, cannot say anything about that part. But the chances are that you start eliminating some of those false alarms. Now, now, the trick with that is that you have to model appropriately where patients still kept safe. You cannot have too much of a delay on it, or you still have to have enough of a delay that you don't have a false alarm. We've done that, and we've combined different thresholds. So what we're now doing is that if someone's SAT is low, but their respiratory rate is okay, then there is a kind of alarm that goes out. But if both of those have met thresholds, then a higher level of alarm goes out which means that instead of one nurse getting paged, five other unit nurses get paged. So everyone knows that if everyone's pager or they carry a phone goes off, then that is a higher level, that's an alarm escalation. If everything, all four parameters look down for a continuous minute or more, then their, their nurse managers or their unit managers also get paged. Beyond that, if no one responds to that in 30 seconds, then the rapid response get, gets paged automatically. Clearly, a lot of false rapid response calls initially, but at least a lot of events that were not missed. And, uh, and then we give them feedback. We generate the data for them every month, every unit, everyone in the hospital gets a feedback on how their unit did with false alarms and response to alarms. I will have to, now let me actually finish that discussion here. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm getting ready to start a randomized control trial at Wake where we're going to randomize patients to continuous monitoring that's going to be available to bedside providers and continuous monitoring where screens are going to be covered and the alarms are going to be silenced. And that arm will only have every four hour vital science check. Because as of now, I still don't have hard evidence to show that continuous monitoring makes a difference one way or the other in patient survival or other organ system failure. So lack of evidence, but we're, we're, we're on our way to show that. Based on looking at uh, some of those uh, notifications or legitimate alarms or illegitimate, or, you know, uh, false alarms, alarms. Uh, have you entertained the idea of having sort of some feedback for actions to be taken based on those alarms so a tech can apply uh, nasal cannula or a tech sits, sits the patient up. If on it not improved within 10 minutes, 15 minutes, then go to that. I mean, just because 
part of the alarm fatigue comment is that you can have all the notification in the world, but all you're doing is it's eventually uh, coming down right. to a human intervention that you know corrects the underlying yeah. problem. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mike, that's a great comment. And I think I can tell you that the, the one variable that's very prone to alarm fatigue is blood pressure. I can harp a lot about hypotension postoperatively, but you and I know that there are patients that live at a map of 60 and they're doing perfectly well otherwise. They're awake alert, you know, you know they're, they're making urine, they're warm, well-perfused, and you know, you'll just get alarms after alarms after alarms on that patient. And the, the bedside nurse is going to page the resident doctor who's carrying the pager. And he or she is going to say, well, you know, everything looks good. Then just let it be, right? And I think that is a critical component where the efferent arm is not well described for the providers. Um, in the trial I'm proposing, I am giving them a, a set of things to do in a certain sequence, which includes fluids and a small presser challenge. And if the patient doesn't respond to that, consider transfer to the ICU. And I know that uh, all of this might be slightly being over aggressive, but it's probably better than ending up with acute kidney injury a week later. So, so, so I guess, you know, the jury is out there. And uh, the jury is out there that, that says, well, you know, patient is okay. Otherwise, he's having episodes of hypoxemia as MAP is 60. What do I do? Um, respond to that alarm. I think if we don't respond to that alarm, then really we're not going to show a difference in outcomes whatsoever. Yes, sir. Uh, are there, um, back to the words, are there any non-invasive uh, markers of perfusion that we can use along with blood pressure that can be easily applied like outside of the ICUs? As of now, not really. I mean, uh, you can start sending lactates on your patients and, and create, and that will, again, convert all your floor patients to ICU patients and, and start your sepsis triggers on everyone, which clearly we don't want that. Um, again, it's a lot of clinical judgment, and it's a lot of prevention of harm. The one thing I will say, though, that once we graduate to a higher level in this technology, hopefully we're going to have enough of a biorepository of uh, like a bioinformatics data set where we can actually look at predictive modeling. So it's probably a change in pattern, right? A patient doesn't get hypotensive suddenly. Most of them have a pattern change that evolves over six to eight hours. Or an AFib doesn't happen all of a sudden, there's a pattern change that evolves over six to eight hours. That is my hope. My hope is that early intervention and detection of pattern change is going to make a difference rather than you know, trying to send everyone to the ICU or trying to, you know, draw labs on everyone. Hopefully that is not the outcome of all of this. 